Welcome, everyone, to the Watchmen podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial podcast for Watchmen on HBO. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. Hello, everybody. The Watchmen podcast by Fantastic Geek pulls off our masks for episode 101. It's summer, and we're running out of ice. Pete, in show news, it being reported that the premiere drew 1.5 million viewers. Uh, that's with your live and some of your time shifted and whatnot. Might sound small when compared to broadcast TV, but don't forget that HBO being, you know, a subscription service, it's about driving those subscription numbers as much as the live watches. I think obviously the most ardent fans are going to catch it at 9 p.m., but, you know, how successful this show is is something that can be measured in a variety of ways. Well, two points. I think that number is only going to continue to rise as the buzz on this show, uh, you know, is through the roof right now. It was so well received. Um, I haven't seen much negative talk and I know the, the, um, production has been bracing for it. We've talked about Lindelof expecting the New York comic con audience, uh, 20% half to be uh, ticked off after the pilot uh, was shown to us uh, didn't happen. And, um, you know, this this is a show that a lot of people are buzzing about. Pete, certainly in extension of the show, and I think to the surprise of many people, at least with how it was executed, was uh, the sharing on the HBO website uh, amidst the Watchmen banner of some uh, some other documents included uh, under the title of PTpedia, and we are going to dig into that later during theories, not during the recap. Yes, we are not going to treat them like attached documents in the comic. If the show wanted us to examine it in such a way, it would have been presented within the body of the episode. The attached document, if you will, in this episode is the silent movie at the very beginning. Certainly it is exciting to dive on in, not only to the extended world, but to the episode proper. And I think Pete, after all this waiting, the time has come. And now it's time to look under the hood of this episode. As a silent era movie projector whirs and a piano plays, a white-clad man on a ivory steed is chased and lassoed to the ground by a black hooded figure on a dark horse in front of a church. The pastor and the congregation come out and ask what he has done to their sheriff. We get the reveal here that it's Bass, the Black Marshal, and the camera starts to pull back from the movie within the show. Uh, we see that there's a piano player and what appears to be only a lone boy watching. Uh, sounds of the impending riot uh, that's going on outside starts to overtake the theater. And uh, we see what can be assumed as the boy's father pulls him out along with that piano player. What I would assume, Pete, is the boy's mother. Yes. And uh, just for further clarification, we're going to talk about it when we get to our crank file a little later on in theories. Uh, Bass Reeves, the black marshal of Oklahoma, real life figure believed to have been the um, 
the inspiration for the Lone Ranger. When the story heads outside, Pete, a horrific scene with black people being gunned down, uh, white hooded Klansmen on the prowl. It is utter sepia chaos. Yes, uh, we're told this is Tulsa, 1921. And, you know, we're not going to go into the public's reaction of this Tulsa race massacre. And, and this was a massacre, not a riot. Um, important to understand, I think, the distinction. Uh, I'm ashamed I did not know about this until recently with uh, the, the TV show coming. More and more people are learning about this. This is art helping uh life to understand this horrible tragedy that went on and just the wanton chaos here of what was done to what was known positively as black wall street this thriving community whites looting and firebombing the stores of black merchants a fallen newspaper headline details the tension that led up to the massacre we have the boy and his parents getting off of Main Street into what feels like a slightly calmer situation. They end up in a, uh, a barn or a warehouse type structure. The boy's put into a pine box. I mean, holy metaphor, Pete. Luckily, mm. the boy's still okay. Um, and the escape is made not before the, you know, the, the bullets pierce the pine box, missing the boy, of course. Um, but we get that hard cut. Time has passed. What was day is now night. The adults with him dead, though he's still alive, and uh, he saves a baby, and then the camera finally moves, showing us uh, in the background that the town is on fire. Love the transition to the uh, the title appearing in the screen, uh, reminiscent both of the comic book. Uh, feels almost like when Fringe would put their uh, you know locations in there, and they had physical weight to them uh back with that show but uh we shift from the road that the boy is walking down uh to the present day where a truck heads down a road to rap music and against our expectations matt there is a white gentleman at the uh steering wheel of a car that does not have gasoline, but instead a battery at 54% before he's pulled over by an African-American police officer. Yes, that electric car, it's a small detail, but one firmly uh, taking its place in some of the background mythology of the series, which we'll be getting into a bit later. Uh, the driver, clearly nervous, keeping his hands in view, uh, the policeman says that he's going to record this interaction, indeed is recording it. Uh, the man claims to be hauling lettuce and jokes about the police officer's covered face. This Pete is the first time that we are seeing that uh, there are masks worn, at least by this uh, patrolman. We'll, of course, see that it applies to most police officers. Uh, the driver reaches for his license and registration, and he's got a Rorschach mask in there, too. Yes, we're told that it is 9.35 p.m. on September 8th, 2019. The lettuce that he's hauling here in the back and the police officer retreats to his car where he calls in for weapons authorization 
and they are going to connect him with Panda, and he would rather speak to anybody else. So some early characterization into what I find a fascinating character in Panda. I very much agree with Panda. Pete, I know we have yet to see him on screen, so I'll, I'll largely stick a pin in discussing him, but I will flash back to seeing the preview and us being like, there's a dude in a panda mask. <laughs> and instead, I realized in retrospect the unique name because we kind of just, you know, things appear fairly normal thus far, fairly similar to our world thus far. Um, the unique name catching your ear, the mask later on catching your eye, and a lot is done with the character, even though not a lot is done with the character on screen, that sort of thing. Um, ultimately, the okay, the authorization is given for the police officer to take his weapon out of its, uh, I guess, uh, electronic lock in the car, takes three times to buzz the weapon free. Uh, the officer, who is Officer Sutton, gets gunned by the driver and uh, a big hole in the windshield there as he, as he bleeds out, and a head of lettuce gets thrown in for good measure. We transition to Oklahoma, where uh, in the audience, a couple watches a masked cop heads to and whispers to the man who dons his hat and leaves, then is in a hallway of a intensive care unit of a hospital and meets with Looking Glass, who we will also know in this episode by the name of Wade. Some real fast editing here. I think that on first, nay, second view, Pete, um, the Don Johnson character, as of yet unnamed, walking out you then see him in a hallway with a bunch of police officers there was the impression of uh oh it's the it's the calm and sedate uh stage presentation now he's outside of that but no they've cut out entirely he starts to leave the theater cut to inside the hospital as you said um the chief is which he is is deeply moved by the attack on his officer and uh wade uh wonders if red and knight should be called in uh this happening at a speed at a casuality uh or casual conversation where i think it could be it could be easy to miss uh, wade's wondering there but ultimately the chief defers and uh decides to go see sutton's wife motorcade heads to his home where the chief speaks with sutton's wife roberta uh we get his first name judd which uh in light of oklahoma has quite a bit of meaning um they are going to move Charlie after his surgery to the secure medical facility at the precinct. And he begins to question Roberta as to whether he's ever told anybody if he's police. His cover story is that he is at night school for engineering. And uh, Roberta notes how it's against the rules to tell anybody and that he didn't. Oh, by the way, he liked uh, Chief Crawford likes Crawford corrected because he's still alive. So some story boxes being checked here. A, the notion that there's these great, great lengths that uh, society, that this precinct, that those in the world of our story go to to keep the identity of police officers secret. And indeed, Pete, another bit of evidence, the notion that there are pretty substantial medical facilities back at police headquarters. Uh, again, two bits of information here really hammering home that all of this is done to protect the police and to protect police identities. 
we meet Angela Abar, who is talking about egg whites as we transition to a classroom where there is a live stream of Dr. Manhattan on Mars. And as she's talking about how if you don't have walls in your cooking, it all comes tumbling down. The very distinct architecture that Dr. Manhattan has made comes tumbling down. Uh, the smiley face that she makes from the eggs in the bowl that we get a tremendous shot from below of. Uh, it's really subtle and you got to know to look in the left eye. There is some red. There's a vein. And we pull back to find out that it is school career day. There's an anatomy of a squid poster in the classroom as well as the four important presidents Redford, Nixon, Abraham Lincoln, and George Washington. This scene, one of visual delights, bringing that Lindelof, you know, uh, sensibility from Lost. Pete, I watched this episode three times, once at New York Comic Con, once at nine o'clock on Sunday, and then rewatched most of the episode uh, Im immediately thereafter. None of those times did I see the dot of blood uh, in the egg smiley face. It was only today on Instagram uh, where they had, you know, an ad or whatever, where I said, oh, my goodness, it's the blood where it would be with the clock image and all that. Uh, also, Pete, there's the more obvious uh, squid poster that you mentioned. When they go to a wider shot of the classroom, all the way to the left, there's another squid poster. So just really, really selling, not just the the expanse of this show's universe, but also giving all sorts of little things that, you know, Pete, if Entertainment Weekly were still a weekly, you know, we'd have the modern day blast door map, whatever that's going to be <laughs> from Watchmen. It would be there decoded and we'd all be wondering what are the vents? What's the Cerberus, Cerberus this and that, the other, all of this, such a rich presentation. And Angela is making for the children Bon Bia, uh, when she was a little girl in Vietnam, they called them mooncakes. The significance there uh, twofold with Dr. Manhattan having gone to the stars and having been in Vietnam and ending that conflict. She was born before Vietnam gained statehood just outside Saigon. She was a police officer there. And then in Tulsa, if what she's telling us can actually be believed uh, and not truly cover story, she's retired. She was attacked on what is known as the White Knight before police um, wore masks. And I have to, you know, one, because I've I've told a TV story in which I've used a classroom as a mode of exposition, but I have to credit the um the producers here for doing it towards children, making it simple enough, even to the point where she explains that she got shot and they had to go in after the bullet and the teacher has to <clears throat> give them all that detail. Yeah, it's remarkable how much exposition has been stuffed into the story so far. Uh, we're aside from the, the the prologue taking place in 1921, we're only a couple of scenes in. This is what our third scene taking place in the present day, and you know all of these details seeping in. None of it in a way that feels like ah, oh, welcome to your first day. Let me tell you how things run around here. <laughs> you know, um, so there's all that effortless exposition. 
also so much of it linking up kind of so immediately to the end of the graphic novel, you know, uh, talk of Vietnam becoming a state and, you know, RR to run in 1988 and things of that sort in terms of a changing political and national landscape. Uh, you have to wonder even, Pete, will we learn more about White Knight either in the show or with some of these documents on the HBO website? It, it just feels so authentic, every last bit of it. I have to wonder if we'll get a flashback or something at some point. We know there's been three years, we're told later by Crawford, since the Seventh Cavalry reared its head. Is that the length of time that uh, cops have, have donned masks? Just three years? Not quite clear at this point. Um, but uh, when she gets to explaining how she instead opened a bakery and retired from police work, uh, freckled Tommy asks if she paid for them with what is known pejoratively as red verations asked twice uh the other boy we've been eyeing in the classroom the long-haired child uh revealed to be topher screams and attacks and we get a quick cut to angela taking herself and topher home uh there's enough of the kind of you know uh parental child conversation there about you know what he did i'm indeed pete i'm underselling it there's reference to uh making it clear from topher to justify his behavior also to tell the audience more effortless exposition that um you know it was meant to be a racist jab and she has the great line that he's not a racist but he's on his way to being one and just when you might say oh man a couple more lines of this i'm going to figure out they're you know, they're spooning me story background. That's when the siren sounds. Yes. Um, and uh, Topher says maybe it's false as we start to see cars pulling over, people running on the sidewalk, somebody's donning an umbrella, and then suddenly splat. Um, before it gets really heavy, we can see if it's not the siren itself, there is a digital readout on the device there off the side of the overpass, maybe some kind of emergency alert apparatus. Um, the first squid, then thousands of them wind up on the car, on the overpass, all over the place, seem to dissolve a little, but not completely. Angela has to squeegee them off. And wonderful inclusion, much in the same way that the graphic novel would reference songs. Uh, love the use of Bob Marley's Three Little Birds here. Everything's going to be all right when your car is pelted with interdimensional squid that make even a child who's had his nose bloodied uh, have to smell them. <laughs> well, there's also, as Angela gets that squeegee, there's kind of a... There's a bored nature to it. Like this, it's made it's clear. Routine. With, it's yeah, it's routine. It's completely routine. Although, apparently there are sometimes false squid alerts. So all this stuff we'll dig into in a little bit. But again, world building nonetheless. And I'll just mention as a side note in terms of prop design, the jelly-like viscous nature of what she squeegees off, you see it for perhaps half a second. Uh, but it just has this sickly you know just it's the last thing you'd want on on your car certainly uh we cut from her car being cleaned to them arriving home and there's a 
city uh, street cleaner made specifically for uh, cleaning off the squid stuff. And we see Angela's husband also concluding uh, cleaning off the, the driveway. So again, this idea that this is disgusting, but still fairly routine and no big deal. There's also a flag visible as uh, Angela's husband, Cal, and their daughter are using the hose there to clean some squid. With the stars arranged in a circular pattern, this to contrast the two flags seen on 7th Cavalry members that are uh, more traditional flags but held down. Uh, the husband, Cal, hands over Angela's pager. It's been going off all morning. It reads Little Bighorn. Pete, I'm sure nothing called Little Bighorn could possibly ever go wrong. Yeah. Um, and with that, we see her make haste to the city center. I would also argue that the acting between the two of them after the pager is handed over, uh, it's subtle, but they both know this is a big deal. They both know the score. We can infer that Cal knows full well. I mean, we'll know for sure later in the episode, but Cal knows full well Angela's, uh, you know, secret employment and things of that sort. We have uh, some further world building. There's the Zeppelin for American Hero Story Minutemen that the New York Times, which is still around, Matt, thank goodness, the gray lady in the alternate universe, calling the most important show of the millennium. Uh, the countdown is almost over. We also see as she's headed into the bakery, air quotes, um, a uh, bystander with a placard that reads, the future is bright, a la the end is nigh and Rorschach in the graphic novel. And he looks really, really optimistic, too. <laughs> um, just as she's trying to open her bakery door, which we see is still, you know, under construction, opening soon, paper up on the windows, that sort of thing. Uh, there's an older gentleman of color waiting for her, it seems, perhaps. Uh, it's been a while, he says, and uh, she says that she's still working to open it. Yes, he's reading the newspaper. The headline, Vite officially declared dead, is vis visible. Um, he has a mole on his cheek in the same place that the child at the beginning of the episode did. So, you know, until we're told otherwise, we can directly assume it's him. The name of the bakery is cute. Milk and Hanoi, a play on milk and honey here. Um, and uh, is it opening soon? I got to wonder if this will be a running joke. Like, you know, they're, they're never going to open this up while she's doing police work. The nature of the cover stories is probably an interesting one within the world. Um, so he'll wait a couple months. And then he asks strangely, do you think I could lift 200 pounds? To which she responds, Yes. Uh, she makes her way through the very under construction store, heads to the back uh, where there's a newer looking door. Pete uses the code 1985 to open things up to her secret lair. She dresses as Sister Knight, uh, the whole outfit just resplendent there, uh, slides into her black car and uh, drives pretty quickly into a shanty area called Nixonville, and uh, a couple of stomps and kicks later, she busts into an RV, smacks a man, and uh, brings him into the underground garage uh, that is, we can assume, police headquarters. The trailer park there, complete with 
graffiti on their own homes, F Redford, uh, and the boarded up RV that she kicks in just completely sells the bonkers nature of the people who live in Nixonville. But nonetheless, this likely, as he's later detailed, winds up in police custody. And we shift at the precinct to the 7th Cavalry video telling us that a cop carcass was left on the highway last night and that soon they intend to wash the black filth away. The streets of Tulsa's gutters, a lot of uh, Rorschach reminiscent uh, rhetoric here, uh, inappropriately uh, appropriated, um, will soon overflow with liberal tears taken right from our times here. Uh, People will shout, save us, and the 7th Cavalry will whisper, no, because they will never compromise, Matt. They, too, have read Watchmen, but they did not understand it. Indeed, Pete, this a video manifesto that is uh, a push against liberals and people of color and police. Uh, They get the group chant, tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Um, and it's as the video wraps up that the chief uh, steps on out, addresses the assembled police, uh, a mix of uh, uniformed officers and other kind of colorful, dare say, comic book characters. You know, there's Red, there's Pirate Jenny, there's Pete Panda. Panda. Um, And indeed, speaking of Pirate Jenny, whose name I did not catch uh, at New York Comic Con. wasn't but... given to us. It only comes across in the subtitles of this episode. There were people online who were asking me, is Pyre Jenny in it? I'm like, I don't know. There's another lady. She's got a, she's got a bandana. She could be Pyre Jenny. She could be Pirate uh, Brenda. I just don't know. It's certainly, I mean, again, you speak to the layering of the, of the show here. Um, it, you know, like the fact that her name is Pirate Jenny, but it doesn't get said, you know, it's in the subtitles. It just speaks to this being such an expansive world where that's her thing. And later it'll come into, it'll come into the conversation, I guess, or it won't. But, you know, there she is as a fully flesh character. Uh, she asks if we're going to go weapons hot. And clearly everybody is saying, yes, weapons hot. Indeed, Pete, I think that at least through the veil of the fictional world here, regardless on uh, of one's views on uh, police overreach and uh, you know access to weapons and things of that sort. I, again, through our TV screen, I think we're saying, uh, yes, police in this show, in this story, need more protection than they have and whatnot. But it's Panda who has the double-sized telephone book-looking thing, <laughs> if Pete, younger listeners, can even remember telephone books. Yep. Uh, He reminds everyone of the rules in place and the need for police to authorize it. There's a vote. There's a reminder that this is, what is it, Section 4, you know, and I think it's a little bit of a reminder here in a show that isn't necessarily presenting us our world unformed, uh, unchanged, that they're really eager to get their hands on their guns. Well, not just weapons hot, uh, warrants free. So the interesting aspect that they would not have a judge's authorization to go into Nixonville to round up these likelies, um, but they can't brandish weapons unless 
the majority of the police force believes their lives are under direct threat. So Looking Glass, Red Scare, they're on board, everybody else. The chief authorizes it. Panda believes this to be a mistake. And Chief Judd Crawford says that this will be prophetically his funeral. The story moves to the chief and Angela talking in his office uh, about the musical Oklahoma, which the former attended. Uh, they also discuss the authorization of uh, Article 4, Pete. I may have said Section 4 before, uh, and police weapons. Uh, she's ahead of the curve, though. She's already rounded up a guy from Nixonville. She's got a nose for white supremacy, and he smells like bleach. Pete, a line that retains its strength and power on the first, on the second, on the third view. Yeah, wants to put him in the pod there. Uh, Looking Glass interrogates uh, the gentleman, we'll use that loosely, uh, who wants his lawyer. But in this world, Matt, they don't have to do that with terrorists. And yes, white supremacists are terrorists. Um, He is interrogated as a series of images begin to uh, be displayed around him in this pod. He's lived in Tulsa for six years. The, uh, the images are punctuated perfectly by the Trent Reznor uh, soundtrack. He's uh, repeatedly asked, is he a member of the seventh cavalry? He denies it repeatedly. Uh, <laughs> it's almost overwhelming to we, the audience to, see the question and answer session and keep track of the images some of which are straight out of our world some of which are uh new to our eyes for example mount rushmore dick nixon included twin towers the um klansman there's pictures of harriet tubman uh there's pictures of jackie robinson uh, there's a squid at one point when he's asked uh, if he believes that transdimensional attacks or hoaxes staged by the U.S. government. Uh, he's asked how he would feel if Looking Glass defecated on a flag. Confused, of course. Should all Americans pay taxes? Of course they should. And, of course, the reputation, too, of uh you know, the question if he is in or associates with the terrorist organization, the Seventh Cavalry. Ultimately, Pete, Looking Glass leaves the pod. We see that it is housed in an abandoned warehouse. Looking Glass feels the man knows more. He was off the charts in the bias questions. The chief gives the most subtle of nods, and uh, Sister Knight starts to apologetically walk the man out of the building. You have to understand, tensions are high. There was a cop shot. You know, apologies again. Then she takes him to a side room and starts to savagely beat him, uh, screaming, where is he? Uh, The answer revealed after blood spilled, a cattle ranch. And a great callback to the panel from the comic book of the water under the door and the blood from the prison with Rorschach. Just twisting that around. Here we have somebody in the 7th Cavalry, the misappropriated Rorschach cult. Um, We get a wide establishing shot at night off to the left. There is some illuminated structure, which we're undoubtedly going to learn more about uh, being built or, uh, you know, just there in Tulsa. 
The police sneak up. They get a head count of four uh, for the house. Uh, inside, there are men and at least one woman who are removing batteries of all different sizes from watches before they get an alarm that the cops are there. And very quickly, too, the, uh, what we will learn to be is the overhead uh, perspective, giving analysis of how many people are inside the building. It quickly doubles to eight or more. Uh, the 7th Cavalry men hand out, uh, hand out weapons and pills and prepare for the police to attack. Uh, they also load some big guns. Uh, as the police make their way through the herd of cattle, they are fired at. Many cattle hit in the process. Uh, an interesting kind of story conceit that gives us kind of maximum carnage, but minimal, you know, A, character loss, and B, you know, kind of horrific <laughs> horrific death of humans, whether they're main characters or not. So we kind of get our, get our story blood and, and don't at the same time. Uh, the bottom line, though, the 7th Cavalry was ready for the police to attack. Yes, Pyra Jenny points out from her vantage point that they have a plane. Uh, they're headed towards that. When Angela gets to the house and is unable to keep the one uh, 7th Cav member from swallowing the poison pill, really briefly but detailed, we see a National Bank vintage advertisement um, with what appears to be an African-American dollar bill, although it's dark uh, in the structure, so it's hard to tell. It could just be um, somebody wearing a mask. It's hard to tell uh, race. But there is definitively a black child with an upset expression in front of this dollar bill and back behind it uh, for this national bank um, there is a white woman who's explaining that they have family friendly and safe offices and they keep the riffraff out exactly the type of ad that would be framed and kept in a white supremacist hideout outside the plane takes off and uh, sister Knight uh, saying to the chief that the plane is right under them. Uh, this, of course, the reveal that the chief and Pirate Jenny are in the owl ship. Pete, the owl ship. Uh, although it does seem that the, you know, rather modest single prop four-seater plane can climb faster than the owl ship. Um, ultimately, though, as they try to get closer, try to get closer, and the owl ship being stressed by this ascent, the chief deploys flamethrowers and the plane goes down. So, too, does the owl ship. Uh, but after a moment of consternation, the chief and pirate Jenny make their way out. Good news, Pete. Neither dies tonight. Couple things. The owl ship has police markings on it. Um, we'll talk about its identity a little bit more when we talk theories. Um, the flamethrower is deployed, but only after the chief uh, forces the ship into something that pirate Jenny says it can't take. Uh, and they get struck by debris, bringing them down. So he was super intent on bringing them down at any cost, which is at the very least interesting once down and everybody safe, except the bad guys, the camera pans to the stars and then dissolves to a beach then a sheep pasture and a character though Jeremy Irons was introduced at New York Comic Con as probably who we think he's playing and told us in a featurette 
he plays a character called the blonde man. We are shown in the weeks ahead footage at the end of this episode in subtitle. He is called Lord of a country estate. So we will henceforth refer to him until we're told differently as L-O-C-E, Lord of a Country Estate, or Los. Oh, uh, well, Los, a.k.a. Jeremy Irons, is back from a horse ride and then suddenly inside. Uh, Miss Crookshanks is working on his thighs. Pete, everyone at New York Comic Con thought she was working elsewhere, but uh, no, just getting a massage after the, 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 the you know, bunch of riding he's done. Uh, Phillips, who is the uh, male uh, staff member, uh, has selected a posh suit because it's Master's anniversary. Cut to the the lavish table where only uh, Los is seated. And uh, the two staffers sing for He's a Jolly Good Fellow for Master's anniversary. And Pete, here's a horseshoe to cut the cake. The cake resplendent in purple and yellow. The outfit colors of Adrian Veidt's Ozymandias if, and that's an if, that's who this character is playing. Pete, many strange moments going on in this scene from the the horseshoe to cut the cake, uh, which of course it is ultimately not cut with, but instead Jeremy Irons kind of pokes at it with a fork. Uh, After one bite, he declares it the bee's knees and sends the cake away. Uh, he's given a present wrapped in fur, which is a pocket watch. So some some narrative straight line that we can discuss there, but some weird tangents with horseshoes and not good cake and uh, fur <laughs> wrapping paper, quote unquote. Matt and I have been friends for, you know, most of this decade and exchange Christmas gifts and the number of fur wrap presents that I've given him you know, goes without saying, but, uh, the pocket, watch, <laughs> the pocket watch, which was constructed from discarded drawings that, uh, Los had done. Uh, the pieces were most intricate and it works. Uh, he wanted Phillips did to surprise, uh, Los and it is indeed declared exquisite. And he has a surprise for them. Indeed, Pete, Master has written a play, and uh, uh, Crookshanks and Phillips will be the leads in the play called The Watchmaker's Son. Cheers! To which they uh, transition to Unforgettable, um, but a wonderful establishing shot of the dinner back in Tulsa. Uh, The table arranged just like a watch, all sorts of detail, Matt, to look at where the napkins are placed, like the hands of a watch. Story moves to Angela's house, uh, the chief and his wife. Pete, we've barely mentioned the wife, played by Frances Fisher, uh, former wife of uh, Clint Eastwood, um, in real life, not in the show. Uh, but anyhow, the chief and his wife are over. Um, one of the girls at the table is listing all the presidents, of course, ending with Redford. The chief steps aside to another room, you know, refill that glass. Also, snort a little bit of nose candy and uh, returns in extra good spirits, uh, which uh, Angela gives a little wipey wipe, uh, you know, signal there for him to presumably Pete clean the cocaine off of his nose. 
Yes. Then Uncle Judd sings because he was in Oklahoma in high school playing Curly. Uh, People will say we're in love. Seeing this with an audience of 3,000 people at New York Comic Con is one of the top moments I've ever had in the 10 years I've attended. Indeed, Pete, watching the pilot Sunday night, I was struck by what a different experience it was to not watch it with a crowd of strangers, uh, to hear people, you know, uproariously laughing at some of the jokes, applauding the singing and things like that. Um, I know that certainly in the in the halcyon days of Game of Thrones, you know, in, in cities and whatnot, you can go to you know, Game of Thrones night at the bar and then watch with everybody, strangers and friends alike. And I feel like there's not enough of that. And I get it. You know, it's HBO. It's meant to be watched at home, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it's a different experience to watch the same story with 3,000 people versus, you know, a couple people. But uh, bottom line, outside the house, time has passed. It's revealed that the cavalry was getting old lithium batteries, you know, the kind that made people sick, the kind that they don't make anymore, Pete. Can't wait to connect that to some of those website documents later on. But time passes again. Later still, Chief Judd is at home watching the commercial for American Hero Story, going through the list of masked heroes of old. Number one, of course, is Hooded Justice. Pete, where's my Hooded Justice footage? Yes, AHS Minutemen. The credits, Matt, look like the Jessica Jones credits. They're in almost the same kind of, uh, you know, comic-y, over-the-top style. Uh, He's on the phone with the governor, uh, and he gets off confidently, his wife pointing out that she saw some of that confidence coming out of his nose at the dinner party. And uh, with that, the chief gets good news. Charlie Sutton's woken up. Pete, that's your officer from the beginning. Uh, Time to put on his, Judd's, uniform and go see Charlie. Uh, He assures his wife that one of the the boys will drive him. uh, But ultimately, the chief steps outside, driving his own truck, despite indeed having officers minding his home, not just in the the, uh, front porch area, but we see in wider shots kind of... uh, protecting the perimeter of his property there. Uh, On the drive to where the chief is headed, we hear a radio announcer talking about 30 years of Sundance in chief. Pete, that's Robert Redford. Uh, Our chief, though, gets a flat tire, sees a spike strip, and uh, suddenly lights strobe up his way. They also on the radio refer to uh, Joseph Keene, he of the Keene Act, and talk about the potential for Joe Jr., to join the race to suit up um, before this flat tire occurs and then uh, lights flash transitioning back to Angela, who we now can definitively say is not a member of the clergy. Uh, Indeed, Pete, my notes say cut to Angela and Cal being marital. Uh, They're interrupted by a call, although, Let's just say, Pete, Angela, reluctant to um, go answer the phone, such as the marital bed. Uh, But she ultimately does answer the phone. Uh, Someone knows she wears a mask and she needs to come to the old oak tree. No mask this time. Uh, She drives there, gets a light in her face, too. This one's solid. Uh, Gets turned off. And Pete, she sees the old man, you know, the one from outside the store earlier in the episode. 
Next to him in the wide shot, there's been a lynching in the tree, and we see the body of Chief Judd hanging. Yes, a uh, single drop of blood falls onto his badge. His left shoe is off, and we get the song from Oklahoma. It's summer, and we're running out of ice because old Judd is dead. Let's open up the crank file to dive into some crackpot theories. Pete, first one from me. Will we see Don Johnson again in this show? I think there's an awful lot to dig into. Um, You know, we were both shocked, although I think we had a little bit of suspicion when he headed out that things might not go well for him. Um, let's, Let's talk evidence for seeing him for not and then matt think about one the the legacy here 15 years later uh damon lindelof has finally been able to pull the michael keaton maneuver with ostensibly the biggest star on the show i mean jeremy irons probably the biggest biggest somebody who we thought would would get as much screen time we we know that regina king is the lead um, but to, to get rid of Don Johnson here, uh, so it seems, uh, what do you think about his potential to return? I think Don Johnson's potential to return is fairly good in that we can get him back in flashbacks. Uh, I certainly would not predict that he's going to continue to be a full member of the cast, uh, and, nonetheless show up in flashbacks i think also his death is probably a permanent one i don't think we're going to get a trick death i don't think we're going to get uh nanobots bring him back i don't think we're going to get his twin uh is played by sylvester stallone or something some kind of story twist like that i think the character is dead and that's that will we get him back a bit uh yeah uh but i could be wrong it could be none at all so Let's look at some evidence here, Matt. We know the Coke problem seems to not be a big deal from his wife, from Angela. Um, The stuff with the unlocking of the guns, there's also a case to be made that this is not Judd Crawford. Is it possible, Matt, Don Johnson was cast as Judd Crawford but Judd Crawford really was once Dan Dryberg. He's got a copy of Under the Hood on his desk. He's got an owl ship. Uh, he would seem to fit the age. Is he Dan Dryberg? Well, Pete, I'll dip into tentatively, I might add, I'll dip into some of those PTpedia documents, uh, which give, give, some background after the comic, certainly some of it is lifted from the comic, uh, but references made to Dan Dryberg being um, imprisoned in the 90s. I believe the second, uh, the second document, which is the, the memorandum from uh, Agent Dale Petey, I think references made to uh, Dryberg um, certainly never having spilled anything, maybe still being in prison. Um, if we use some Star Wars reference here, Pete, I know there's 
it's not clear whether this is whatever Star Wars used to call it, A-level or Lucas-level or whatever the tippity-top stuff was, if we're going to take this document as something more than, hey, an HBO staffer typed this up, go to the website, kids, um, then it might lean towards no, but, I mean, twists and turns aplenty can, uh, can happen. Is he secretly a member of the 7th Cavalry or has there been some kind of conspiracy here to unlock the guns, to have a misdirect? The 7th Cavalry almost seems too easy a uh, antagonist to scapegoat. Is this some other reach that he's going for and sacrifices himself for a larger plan. It's funny you should mention that watching the pilot with new eyes, that was my concern. Watching it the second time, even knowing how it ended, that was still kind of my concern in the moment. And I wonder why that is, because there's not dialogue to support that. Uh, I don't think there's camera work to support that, uh, you know, editing or things that make him look suspicious or things of that sort. Uh, I do wonder if there is music to suggest that i don't know that we always as viewers kind of consciously process what the music is trying to tell us aside from the obvious you know uh star wars fanfare at the beginning of star wars it's a fanfare get ready to have fun and things of that sort um i don't know where that emotion is coming from on my end if it is the music well either they're letting the two composers just do whatever they want because they want an Oscar for the social network and they're, you know, it's Trent Reznor and his recording partner or they've been told, hey, the music here should be suspicious or let's give more of this or, hey, Trent, go read the script for 104. Now go write the music for 101. Um, I'll kind of back up your, your proposal as well, Pete. There's a brief shot of uh, apparently young Judd with yeah. his father or grandfather uh, kind of in his expensive dressing room and something doesn't feel right about that either even though you kind of look at it and just say it's a boy with an older guy again it's dad or grandpa and that's not suspicious but there's somehow suspicion yeah you wonder if it could somehow be connected to the the first under the hood chapters that we read in the graphic novel and some of the stuff that went on at the auto garage if there could be some connection there um, the graphic novel at its height does a lot of things, but deals in tremendous symmetry and mirroring and that the episode opens and ends with sheriffs getting theirs um, and centered around cattle was really, really interesting. Well, I'm also reminded, Pete, I know Lindelof had said, I'm pretty sure in the New York Times article that we referenced in our season one preview, uh, the notion that the, the the graphic novel starts with a murder, mm -hmm. the mystery who did it, and that's what they're doing this season too. The expectation is by the end of the season, all these questions are answered. So the notion that there's symmetry in terms of a a law enforcement officer being attacked in the beginning and one dying in the end I mean, I feel like that's a symmetry. I don't want to say it writes itself because that's, I think that's suggesting this is an easier story than it is. But I think that certainly is evocative of the world of the graphic novel, kind of the, the, the skeleton of the graphic novel. So Lou Gossett Jr.'s character 
uh, scene at the end of the episode at the base of the tree, his hands spread in a wheelchair on his lap. He has the piece of paper, which is actually um, that was Axis propaganda that was dropped um, during World War One. Uh, that on the other side of it explains that uh, colored soldiers could uh, basically betray their um, their country and uh, get get room and board from the Axis. So this is the thing that Ob chooses to write the message: "Watch over this boy," which this man revealed in the coming in the weeks ahead segment to be named Will Reeves has. And I think that demonstrates the, the necessity of the prologue portion in 1921, this notion that in addition to, or perhaps even superior to, you know, costumes and running around and gunfights and, you know, fist fights and owl ships and things of that sort, this is looking at the issue of racism, which, you know, is without understating it, is a, a pervasive and ongoing topic, even though sometimes it feels like it isn't, uh, you know, in the world of the show, hey, the cavalry has been quiet for three years. Well, it's also been about 100 years since this attack on Black Wall Street. And there must have been some discussion from some quarters, you know, at HBO or whatever saying, do we need to open with this super in-your-face, violent, you know, uh, apparent tangent from the main narrative? Uh, I think it's clear that the answer is yes. Yeah, it's so powerful. And even in the way that it's cut, that we have the child looking through the bullet holes and then there's the bomb from the plane and he loses consciousness and wakes up in the field Um I can't remember, Matt, if you've mentioned it during our analysis here or just off mic with me, but referring to it as this kind of alternate take on Superman. Yeah, the the idyllic home, that of Black Wall Street being destroyed and uh, propelled out of it, is a survivor or two. And just this notion of the home you can't go back to and the promise of uh, the promise of youth, Pete. And the detail of this show, just so deep, just so dense, that the infant is scooped up in a blanket that on first uh, look seems to be an American flag. It's not, but it's so reminiscent of it. All of that intentional. Um, Some more stuff on the chief, Matt. And again, potential misdirect that the police officer gunned down early on, that Officer Sutton needs the gun, that Panda is scape pandaed, uh, seemingly, that didn't buzz quick enough or it's faulty technology or whatever. It, it, it again, smells like a setup, that, it, that it's faulty, that it, it, it doesn't work, that he gets it out, but it's not in time. I suppose it depends which competing story need fed that scenario. Do we see it not working so that we can understand how it works? So we can understand the process of you got to give the okay. There's a 
you know, there are hurdles to it. I did it. It didn't work. You know, is it is it to show the the process or is it to show the conspiracy which we which will be revealed later on? I suppose it also could be both. Uh, Pete, I know this. I don't envy uh, I don't envy a showrunner like Damon Lindelof running a show. Certainly post Lost, you then add perhaps most immediately post uh, Westworld where. You know, there's this rapid, almost real-time analysis. And, you know, potentially, Pete, you may have uncovered a twist, which they thought was a really great yarn that nobody will figure out uh, until they get, you know, until it explodes in their face. And here you figured it out, you know, a couple days afterwards. So when we see Dr. Manhattan streaming on Mars, we see the little blue figure, but we see what he creates. And the architecture of the castle that he creates is almost exact to that of the Lord of the country estate, which opens up a whole possibility of different paths that they could go down. Has Dr. Manhattan scooped up Adrian Vite and they've faked the death. And this is some kind of prison sentence is we have to remember Dr. Manhattan left earth to go elsewhere and create new life is the Lord of the country estate assuming the identity of Adrian Vite or somebody like him has created new life that doesn't understand. You don't make a cake from a honeycomb though. There is sugar in a cake. You don't cut it with a horseshoe though. It is a, uh, you know, sharp in certain places, metal object. Um, There's just so much to dig into there. I'll add to that, Pete, that if we take things at their most, um, at their most obvious, which I'm very reluctant to do, particularly since to the public, Lindelof is saying, you know, or he's having people say the character who you think he is. And we discussed in the season preview, you know, all right, that's suspicious that he's not committing. Uh, I'll mention side note to the New York Times. He seemed to commit more, but maybe if, you know, put yourself in Lindelof's shoes. Do you tell the New York Times uh, don't believe who this guy is <laughs> or do you just sit and go with what the assumption is? Like, I don't I've know what to the believe. Times name him as Vite. I've seen the Washington Post name him as Vite. Um Each time that's come from the writer, it's not come from Lindelof. It's not come from the production. I'll add to that, Pete. It appears that the Jeremy Irons character is, uh, I mean, life doesn't get much better, right? We all wish that we could just hang out in our castle all day, have staff to take care of us, you know, go for a horse ride. It seems like he has ultimate freedom in terms of not wanting for anything, spending his with physical and intellectual pursuits of his choosing um people who seemingly unconditionally care for him as i suppose people? a servant does well people quote unquote um i will say this pete in a very lostian sense of you know what's black is white and white is black i'm making the prediction that regardless of who this jeremy irons character ends up being he looks as free as possible. What's the opposite of that? I think he is in a prison of sorts. I think that we're going to see a horse ride where he's going to go for another long ride and he goes to the edge of the property and that's where it's a, there's a, you know, a moat and a wall and the barbed wire 
points in or there's you know masked uh fbi agents with uh machine guns guarding him to keep him in not to keep other people out so again this notion that he's as free as you could want free from intellectual worries free from drama free from needing to clean up for himself pete free from needing to wear clothes while he writes his play um i'm saying perhaps he's in prison i need you to commit is this prison on earth um before you brought to my attention the similarities of dr manhattan's creation on mars and the the estate shot in wales in, in reality um i would have said yes i would have gone for the theory that um you know the rorschach journal caught up with him and and uh in order to both keep the peace in terms of hey squid threat uh everybody has to work together um but also to have him you know pay for the death of three to four million people the world the world powers have put him in prison um i think that some of the documents on ptpedia work against that in terms of uh their claim both in the uh the memo from agent dale pd and also the the entirety of the article you know vite declared dead references made to him having disappeared eight years ago which i think regardless of how much you place uh place confidence in these articles he wouldn't be declared dead if he went missing in 1988 1992 because that's when the long arm of the law right. caught up with him you know it's kind of the eight-year thing i don't know what the law is the eight to ten year thing seems to make more sense so i feel like if i have to commit pete i feel like right now the evidence is that he's on earth but they could be packing one heck of a wallop and he's an automaton in a bubble <laughs> on mars this worldwide manhunt that they conducted for him his uh his companies his holdings haven't been purchased by uh lady true and her organization somebody we haven't met yet uh the asian woman who appears in the footage from future weeks Three characters we haven't met yet of note, her, uh, Lori Blake, of course, and uh, Joe Keen Jr., who we're going to meet in the weeks ahead. Um, but back to uh, the Lord of the Country estate here. Um, are the servants robots? There's something non-human about them. Are I they mean... clones? I think that robots or robotish is probably the best bet. I mean, a clone, Pete, even if you're doing Clone Wars advanced growy uppedness, I mean, <laughs> to say this is a knife, it does cutting. This is a dull horseshoe, it does standing on. That is not a distinction that, you know, th that a little child cannot make them kind of not knowing i think initially if i want to shoehorn no pun intended if i want to shoehorn the horseshoe into my prison theory well they're giving him you know this is the you know uh you know spoons only no shoelaces no knives kind of thing but the fact that then his response is you know you know no i'll cut it myself or no we're going to use the fork that kind of thing add to it the you know we used honeycomb honey is sweet oh it's actually disgusting there's something non-human about them i would again i would go kind of robot or organic robot or something like that chief crawford 
felt really strongly that that plane needed to be destroyed. He went against what pirate Jenny uh, was trying to do. He sped the plane up at, or the plane, the owl ship and couldn't handle what he was doing. Uh, they crashed it as a result. Was he really going out of the way to cover up some potential tracks? I mean, it could go either way. And my biggest concern in that scene is, you know, fine. He's in, he's in the owl ship. She apparently is the pilot, the pilot. She's the pirate pilot. Um, It seems unreasonable that in a situation like this to push the ship beyond what it can do, you know, like if you think of a modern kind of analog to that in terms of, you know, the chief is the chief of police is in, you know, the, NYPD Hummer and it's like you know no go faster go faster at a certain point you'd say you know no we're not going to blast through that wall in our truck here we're going to go around or we're going to call more call for more help or whatever it is there does seem to be a dangerous desperation there am I going to commit fully to he's the guy on the inside no but I also have this gut from the music or from somewhere that he is the guy on the inside so looking glass brings him his uniform he changes into it um, he does not want to call in Red Scare and Sister Knight immediately after Sutton is uh, shot, which makes you think he's he's doing things uh, behind the scenes. Looking Glass being the uh, interrogator, let's assume a, a criminologist, maybe somehow able to do this in plain sight. And I think it begs the question too, the cops are not known. Are the people unaware as well of who the chief of police is? He doesn't wear a mask. Uh, he changes into his uniform and then, uh, before he meets his fate, uh, he drives off alone, not under uh, the guard of masked police officers. So something funny was afoot there as well. Pete, my read was that the chief of police is known publicly uh, as, you know, as Judd and as the chief of police. I think that, and I'm not using any direct evidence initially from the episode, but I think that just as a matter of public policy, if you're going to have masked police officers and masked detectives, You have to have that accountable person who, you know, we all can say there is the chief of police. That's who I can take my concern to about some of these uh, police matters, especially now that the police are anonymous. I think some show evidence is the rather public way in which he's taken from uh, the presentation of Oklahoma. um, And indeed, the fact that we'd never see him in a mask. Then you add to it the fact that his home and his property are well protected, perhaps because he is the only Uh, uncovered face for the police. So Bass Reeves, who is in the silent movie we said earlier, was the inspiration, the real life inspiration for the Lone Ranger. We know that Lou Gossett Jr. is playing a character named Will Will Reeves, um, that he uh, is identified by Angela in weeks ahead as being 90. He says, no, he's 105 and you curse too much related to Bass Reeves? Uh, I will kind of split the difference and say he has taken his name from Mm -hmm. Bass Reeves. Mm -hmm. Um, 
particularly in that kind of you know heroic uh, tradition there. Uh, there certainly is the possibility of direct lineage. I know I had read uh, before reading the pod, before doing the podcast, I had read that um, some of Bass Reeves' uh, descendants, I think his great nephew or something like that, was uh, like the first African American prosecutor in Nebraska in the '70s or something like that. It was as as recent as the '70s that this family member had had uh, you know reached kind of a social milestone. So you know there is that possibility of a direct connection, but. Pete, I hear Reeves, I think George Reeves, I think Christopher Reeve, I think Superman, I think fake identities. What about the um, connection potentially between the 7th Cavalry to Vite with the poison pills? Well, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting suggestion to bring up. I know in, uh, in, the second document on PTpedia, the memorandum from Dale Petey, he actually argues for the opposite in terms of there's the Rorschach kind of hero worshiping out there in society, and they all blame Vite because, as we all know, there was this terrible false journal that claimed Vite was guilty for for the uh, the attack and the squid and all of that. Um, so the document essentially argues for we need to keep pursuing Vite, if only to give the idea out there that Vite is a force because that notion of Vite is holding back the Rorschach people from feeling overly empowered and taking action. Um, so I would say, I would say if, if the Rorschach, uh, if the 7th Cavalry rather, if they're taking the pills somewhat inspired by Vite it's with maybe a dark sense of humor, like Vite did this to someone else, but we will do it to ourselves to protect our, you know, our, our plans. Very interestingly, Louis Gossett Jr. is clad in purple and red. Was he at one point hooded justice? Great question there, Pete. I know the timeline certainly would work out to support that. I then also think, you know, we have what I, we have the, the ticking story clock of American hero story countdown, which I think plays by and large as, Oh, that's the thing that they watch. Like it doesn't play necessarily as a story countdown or something that we need to look at beyond. This is what them folks watch in the TV in their world. Um, but it could well function as here's our exclusive reveal that it was so-and-so and we say, wait, that looks like young Lewis Gossett jr. Uh, you could definitely be onto something there. Um, though it was established in the graphic novel, they thought they knew who uh, was under the hood of Hooded Justice. I think it'd be an interesting reveal here. A couple others, Matt. Angela and Cal have three Caucasian children. There's got to be a backstory there. Yeah, I know. Initially, when watching this, my wife uh, said of the character of Topher, oh, that must be Don Johnson's son or nephew or whatever there, just because, as you say, Pete, of the, 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 you know, the, the colors of their skin. Um, it's very clear in the story that, um, <laughs> indeed, when they say things like mom and dad, it's clear that these children uh, are the children that belong to Angela and Cal. I think there's you can go kind of very outside the story and say, oh, they did colorblind casting, which could be true. But if casting is leading to confusion for no point, 
then, you know, you can certainly rethink casting. I mean, it makes me wonder this whole, the whole edges of the world that we are still getting to know, you know, is this, is this an adoption thing? Is it, is it something else? I'm not quite sure where the show is going to take it. I'm not quite sure where the show might need to take it relative to, oh, it's just a small story detail, you know, to go back to Lost. When is it just a blast door map? And when is it a key to all 121 episodes? And what is it in between? You know, we need to kind of keep that in mind. Not everything is a thing, although things could be built as things. And that just adds to the confusing thing. And I saved this one for last because all the other stuff seems grounded enough in reality, apart from the fact that we have a character who is on another planet making sandcastles. Um, but the squid rain and these sirens and warnings, what is going on there? Is this a Tulsa thing? Is this done in North America? Is this everywhere? What is going on with this? Well, your question kind of dovetails nicely into my point, but I'll, I'll save my point for the moment. You know, we get reference in the pod to a bunch of crazy things. Um, if I defecated on the American flag, how would you react? And we get, you know, all sorts of things. But then there's it that reference. poop, Matt. This, this <laughs> show is officially going to go off the, off the reservation. Um, there is that question asked, you know, do you believe the, the squids, the squid rain, whatever the exact phrase is, uh, is a conspiracy of the government? And we see in that question the idea that if you believe that, then you are a crackpot. And we get in some of the other uh, documents on the website there, kind of this offhand stuff, particularly with the Rorschach Journal, you know, this sold really well in the 90s, but, you know, smart people don't believe that Vite did it. Well, Pete, you and I and everybody who's read the graphic novel knows Vite did do it. So you kind of get this uneasy sense that could the squid be a constant reminder, a la, quite frankly, you know, taking your shoes off at the airport? You know, the, plenty of people have argued that's just there to remind people, behave, be a little bit afraid, be vigilant, listen to the plan. The plan keeps you safe. Could the squid be that? I really feel like that's the case. I really feel like it is a government conspiracy. I f feel like it is a method of control. You said, Pete, where does it take place? Well, insofar as Red Scare is there to remind us, uh, not that it's weird for a Russian national to come over here and work in our government, <clears throat> but instead in the world of Watchmen, there is this sense of global uh, cooperation and you could have a Russian national come and be a police lieutenant or detective or whatever in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I think the squid really are a, a method of controlling the populace. So this is a global conspiracy. The triggering of uh, cephalopod precipitation. Yes. And then that kind of leads into my final point here. I think that we get in the novel this notion that particularly, you know, a novel written in the 80s with a certainly a post-Watergate sensibility, this notion that what's the worst things could be? It's not only that evil genius attacks the, the country, attacks New York, attacks the globe ostensibly, and millions of people die. It's also, you know, Richard Nixon elected for a third term and beyond. 
and kind of that as a worst case scenario, you think what could the, you know, if that makes the evils of the graphic novel, well, to have a liberal response, to have a liberal presidency for 25 or 30 years, that's got to make things great too, right? And we have notions here of some of the these, you know, kind of hot button social justice issues, whether it's reparations or um, police violence and things of that sort. But here we have President Redford since 1988 or 1992. Well, hang on, though, because Gerald Ford is name checked when the children are counting off the presidents. So Ford was president after Nixon. So something happened with Nixon. It didn't go Nixon Redford. It went Nixon Ford Redford. Well, then you know what? That would be in line with the uh, the FBI memo uh, document that's on the PTpedia, um, which talks about a a blue wave in 1992. You know, yes. lots of Democrats being uh, uh, elected. That would also work into uh, what's referred to as the Tech Recall and Reintroduction Act of 1993. Which basically kind of if you some of this is kind of referenced like everybody's already in the know and you kind of need to put the pieces together a bit. But this notion that everybody reached the conclusion that there was the squid attack because all that technology somehow is messing things up. And that's echoed in the episode where they're using these um, lithium batteries, um, which come from a time come from Manhattan made components uh, if we use the language of the uh, the memo there, and this notion that it's only in 2019 where we're starting to come down from the 30-year uh, tech recall and reintroduction act to start to get technology into things. And Pete, if all that isn't bad enough, and it took me a Google search to see what was, what was right in front of me, there's the uh, the note here from the FBI director. Surgeon General Oz maintains you will not get cancer by using this device, the computer that you're supposedly reading this thing from. And Pete, it took me it took me a minute to finally realize, wait, Surgeon General Oz means that he has what title? Surgeon General? He, well, sorry, he has the well, how about he has what degree? A medical degree? It's Dr. Right, Oz. The, sur the Surgeon General in 2019 it's, is Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz. Which, Pete, if that's not proof that the great liberal response to 30 years of a Nixon presidency, it still gets us confusing results. There you go. Surgeon General Dr. Oz. We're, we're living in the worst of times, I think. Well, I would disagree, Matt. We're living in the best of times and able to provide our listeners with this podcast and 18 other podcasts in the Fantastic Geek family of podcasts because of the contributors to patreon.com slash fantastic geek indeed pete particularly during this time of year where we are podcasting so much ramping up to it we're not even there yet pete where we have watchmen we have godfriend and me those are concurrent looking ahead to star wars the mandalorian and the marvel tv show runaways all of this happening in the next couple of months eating up bandwidth storage and we are so proud to be listener supported and just so pleased to be supported by those loyal listeners. Don't leave out Star Trek Picard in the new year. All of it made possible by the people of patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content, all sorts of levels to contribute at. But all it takes is a dollar to get you into that door. A measly quarter a week for this thing and these other things we bring you.
Pete, as it says in that uh, FBI document on the website there, the future is here again. Embrace it. And uh, we are so proud to have our listeners embracing us. I'm picking up some psychic transmissions from our audience. Pete, we ran a poll on Twitter. What did you think of the epic pilot for uh, Watchmen? Uh, 10% said one star, human bean juice. 3% said two stars, Nixonville. 24% said uh, three stars, watch batteries. And 62% said four stars, mind blow. Mm. You know, Pete, like the blow. I'm going to imagine that the 10% that gave this one star are part of an apparent movement because this angers people to uh, scud the show, in which case you're not only dumb, you're butthurt. Uh, a couple of tweets as well. First one from Andre Yeager, that's at Dr. Polo1983, who says, I think we have another lost on our hands, and Regina King is a national treasure. Loved it. Uh, and also a tweet from uh, James, it's at Big Killin, Hooked, one of the best pilots I've ever seen. Great blend of our world and the source material. Pete, what do you have on your end? Darren Lewis, that's at DLEC4000, Darren G, says, this may be the prime time hour that U.S. citizens have been needing. I feel edified. Yeah, I mean, it. this is a show that does not pull its punches. This is a show that's trying to make us look at our world. And as I said before, it's not doing so in a way that says, you know, liberal good conservative bad cops never trustworthy or cops always trustworthy it's dealing in mixing things together and having us look at the issues not necessarily the the sound bites from our world melissa at sith lord mel writes i'll be watching tomorrow she wrote this on on sunday so presumably she's watched and she's listening now can't wait i've been looking forward to the show Pete, further proof that, uh, you know, you can time shift it. You can watch it live. It's all about getting those views in. Lily Pink and Green, that's at Lily's Kiwi, said, loved it. And then Rob Wolford, that's at Robert P. Wolford, said, it's intriguing. Time will tell, but I'm going to give it a shot. Pete, last bit here, an email from uh, 7th Cavill Steve, who we heard from last week. Here's his email. Dear Pete and Matt, hello from the road, specifically the Motel 6 in Rapid City, South Dakota. Thank goodness for free HBO. I feel like this first episode of Watchmen smacked me in the face. What am I supposed to think of a show that takes guns away from the police but gives them to criminals? Uh, is it saying that I'm somebody who would end up in Nixonville? Clearly Don Johnson won't be hiring anyone like me for his police force. I also feel a little surprised at how much screen time some of the characters are getting. I did really dig Looking Glass. I really hope you boys can shed some light on where Vite is. Clearly, that's the big mystery of the show at this point. Pete, that's from 7th Cavill Steve. Well, uh, interesting that he's on the road here and had to rely on free HBO on, on what we think is going to be appointment TV. Um, and hopefully we've addressed some of his concerns. Pete, love hearing from all those variety of listeners there. How can people be in touch with you on Twitter to talk Watchmen? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, -E 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 10,740 followers. Can't be wrong. 
And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek. All one word with the PH. Like it today. Well, Pete, for those listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we, of course, will be talking Godfriended Me soon. Probably have some Marvel TV Jeff Loeb reflections in the near future as well, but definitely ramping up for a busy and fun November and December with the aforementioned Mandalorian and Runaways. And uh, Pete, I saw on TV, apparently there's going to be some sort of space battle movie right around Christmas. I guess we'll podcast that too. So all of this coming your way on the Pop Culture Podcast feed. But if you're just here for Watchmen, we will be back next Watchmen Wednesday to talk episode 102 of this series. With that, I will say dosvidanya to all our listeners and give you, Pete, the final word. There will be no mob justice today. Trust in the law! Trust in the law!